Let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 2, covering verses 17 to 29. I titled this morning's message, The Jew Stands Guilty Before God. We know that chapter 1 was a chapter that zeroed in on really the, the Gentile. And it was really speaking about those who were on that course, on that downward spiral, we could say, of sin. How many of us, thinking back on your days before Christ, were on that same path? That downward spiral, that vortex, if we could say, that really led to destruction. And then God reached out and drew us by His Holy Spirit. And we gave our life to Christ. And He saved us. He redeemed us. And then we look at chapter 1 and we realize, you know, that was once me. That was, that was me. That's the road. That was the path that I was on. I think that the book of Romans, as I shared as we began this book, it, it's a very important book for the Christian. We need to not just know all the facts about what we're reading here, but we need to be grounded in the truths of our salvation. I really believe for us as Christians that it's essential for you to be grounded in these truths. It'll be essential for your victory as you walk as a Christian in this world, knowing what Christ has done and what He has accomplished. By the time we get to Romans chapter 8, that some have said is like the first eight chapters of Romans are like a diamond. And when you get to Romans chapter 8, it's like that glistening on the diamond. We're going to see as we go along through these first eight chapters of Romans that there's some incredible truths about what Christ has accomplished for you and me, our great salvation. We learned in chapter 1 that the Gentiles, that they stand guilty before God. How many Jews do we have here this morning? Raise your hand if you're a Jew. I don't see any hands. So that means that you're all Gentiles. So Calvary Chapel Fellowship is... Primarily, we're going to say it's a Gentile church. We're a Gentile group of believers. And what you see in scriptures, you either are a Jew or you are a Gentile. That's how God puts it into those two places Jew or Gentile. Now, remember that the Apostle Paul, he was a Jew himself. But Paul, as his ministry began to unfold, came to realize that he had a ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentile nations. Peter was that apostle who was going to take the gospel to his fellow Jews. And so we see God raising up these two apostles, Paul to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. In our study in in chapter 2, and this goes back now a few weeks because we've been away from Romans, 
uh, for a couple of weeks now. But in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, we looked at the danger of the people that would be self-righteous. People living in self-righteousness. Maybe you were one of those that really thought you were all right with God. And what you attributed that to was the things that you have done for God. Maybe you got water baptized and you thought that was sufficient. Maybe you were a regular church attender and that was good enough. And maybe you helped and belonged to different ways of reaching out to the poor and the needy and you thought that that was sufficient in the eyes of God. But in a sense, that becomes a self-righteousness. It's telling God that you owe me something. Because you see, I have lived a life that has sought to be obedient to you and to your commandments. And I've sought to, to help the poor, to do this. And it becomes really a self-righteous salvation. We looked at the moralist. Uh, those that really feel like, you know what, they really have a very moral lifestyle. You've met people like that. They're those that really in their own mind, they, they're very moral people. And it's the moralist that we saw in, the, in these verses here that typically are the ones that become the most judgmental. They have the, uh, the eyes that look at people and they, they, they try to judge themselves by what they see in other people. That's what religion will do. Maybe some of you have been trapped in that before you came to know Christ. You were a moralist. You tried to live this moral life and, and in your mind, everyone else wasn't quite doing what you were doing. This standard of righteousness that our flesh wants to rise up and do, it's our standard. You see, God's standard for righteousness exceeds man's standard. And and what we read when we read through God's Word is that we cannot obtain that standard of righteousness that God requires. It'll never happen. Paul, in chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, look at your Bibles. He wrote, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man. We could say, O mankind, or all mankind. Because that term, O man, is a reference to both men and women. It's a reference to all, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. In other words, all mankind, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice what? The same things. Have you ever done that? You judge somebody, but in a sense you're doing the same thing, but maybe just in a little bit different twist to it. But we, in our self-righteousness, we set ourselves up as judge. 
Look at verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. God will always judge righteously. He'll never make a mistake. Uh, No one will ever be judged falsely by God. His standard of judging is perfect. And He doesn't just judge the outward, He judges the inward. He sees what's inside. Verse 3 says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? There's some that want to believe that they will escape based upon their own self-righteousness. That somehow or another, there's this loving God would never judge me. But we need to be careful with what we say. We need to be careful. We need to make sure when we look at God's Word that, that God's Word is what we judge our salvation by. I need to, to put myself up against the Word of God. And then allow God to judge righteously. God's standard of righteousness is not man's standard. That's an important truth for us to know. His standard of righteousness is perfection. Does anyone here feel like they've obtained that? That they're even living in that now? That that state of perfection, that state of being right in the eyes of God based on your own works and what you can do for God. You see, man says, I'm a good person. Some of us maybe made that same statement. Why would you go to heaven? I'm not a bad person. I'm not all that bad. I'm okay. But God says in Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says that there's not a just man on the earth who continually does good and sins not. Not one. Man says, I try to to keep the Ten Commandments. Some of us have maybe said that in times past. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of them all. Just one. God's standard of righteousness, if you offend in one, you're guilty of them all. That's God's standard. Man says that I have good works and in a sense that God is obligated to accept me based on my works. In other words, He owes me. He owes me something. God says in Romans 4.4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, 
but as debt. How did you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Was it by your works? Or was it by God's grace? You see, God is never going to be indebted to any man. When it comes to salvation, God will never say, I owed it to you. Uh, you see, every, my salvation is solely based upon what He has done for me, not what I can do for Him. God says that salvation can never be earned. I hope you're convinced of that truth this morning. Salvation can never be earned. It will never be given based upon man's works. Paul made that very clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says that it's not of works lest any man or any woman would boast before God. Just think if we did get to heaven by works. Just think how ugly that would be on that day. <laughs> we all come marching in, standing before the Lord, and we just start reading off the list of all the things that I have done for God. In a sense, boasting about all the great deeds and the works that we've done. How'd you like to be standing in that line, hearing one person in front of you going through their list of works that they have done for God? And God says, you know what? It's insufficient. It's not enough. It, it, it doesn't meet my requirement. We read as we went through 1 John, we read about Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, He stands on my behalf before the Father. And He declares me righteous in the eyes of God. He declares you righteous in the eyes of God based upon Jesus Christ the righteous. His righteousness being given to your account for you on, on, on your behalf. Remember that Paul is writing this letter with the intention that not one soul will be able to have an excuse before God. You see, every human being is going to stand before God and kneel before God someday. Not one of them will be able to, to plead a case. They won't be able to say, you, you know, God, I, I have entered because of this or that. Paul's going to make it very clear to us by the time we get into the third chapter of Romans here that Jew and Gentile and all mankind that they stand guilty before God. As I shared in the beginning, it's like Paul bringing all Jews and Gentiles into the courtroom of God. He says, I'm going to make a case. I'm going to make a case that whether you are Jew or Gentile, you stand guilty before a righteous God. The key verse some have placed in chapter 1, verse 17, the key verse maybe to the book of Romans, 
For in it, that it is the Gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul quoting from Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. The justified shall live by faith. Those that have come into a right standing with God, it's by the vehicle of faith. That's how God brings us into that relationship with Him. The just or the justified will live by faith. Paul in Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one. I've said more than one time as we've started out in this book of Romans that it's important for people sometimes to be lost before they can be saved. It's important when we share the gospel with people sometimes that they realize their state, that they are lost. And, and when Paul in these chapters here, in these first three chapters, when he makes this case, what he's wanting to do is to bring all of mankind to that place where they realize, I'm lost. I'm dead in my sin. There's no hope for me. You see, until a person realizes they're lost, why do they need a Savior? Why do they need Jesus Christ if they're okay? You know, and, and, and our flesh wants to tell us we're okay. And we're not. This letter is going to first condemn all of mankind so that we will be able to see the greatness of the Gospel. So that we can actually see how great this gospel is. He wants to bring us to a state that we're lost. And how he does that, and Paul is a, a great teacher, by the way. He's a great communicator. And, and obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing this letter out to the church at Rome. And in doing so, he's wanting to ground these believers in their faith, in the Gospel. And in doing so, he knows that he's writing to both Gentile and Jews that were there in Rome. And he uses a series of rhetorical questions as he writes this letter. It's a good way to bring out a point. You see, when he, when he asks a question, he's not necessarily asking for you to answer it. He's asking the question in this rhetorical way so that it'll get your wheels thinking. He'll get you to start thinking about what he has just asked. And in a sense, the obvious will come out of it. It's a way of teaching to drive home a point. And so that's why when we're reading through these first three chapters, we see this series of questions 
We'll see that actually as we go through, even quite a few times in chapter 6, we'll see these questions that Paul poses all the way through. It's almost like Paul is asking the questions that you and I would like to ask. That's how he's doing it. When we get to chapter 3, verse 9, Paul is going to conclude that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty before God. Look at your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Asking a question. Are we, he's speaking about the Jews, are we better than they? Speaking about the Gentiles. And what's the answer to that? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. He just drove a point home. He just come, came to a, and brought us to a conclusion in this verse. In chapter 3, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. God's going to stop every mouth. His word, His truth, stops the mouths of those who want to say, I'm all right. I'm good. Me and God are good. And that's our flesh. It's it's what it wants to do. But Paul wants to not let anyone escape Galatians 2.21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I love that verse. Christ died for nothing. If I, if I could do it by the law. How do you think that sounded in the Jew's mind? Somebody that held the law so dear to their heart, it had been given to them by God. Do not set aside the grace of God, my fellow Jews. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He died for nothing. The cross wasn't needed. He would have just given you His commandments and said be obedient to them, and then you can have eternal life. But that wasn't the case. Jesus Christ had to come and die. When we get to chapter 3, verse 9, Paul is going to make that conclusion. But let's, let's start by first looking at what we had read a few weeks ago. I think it's important to keep us in context for what we're going to look at today. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, 
you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath in the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life, and this is the result, eternal life to those who by penitent continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, here's the result. Indignation and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Of who? The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is what? No partiality with God. Aren't you glad that verse is there? God doesn't think of the Jew more highly than we. They are His chosen people, but God looks at both Jew, Gentile, and every human being equally. There is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them in the day when God will judge And look what it says, the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You see, God is going to judge the heart. God sees our hearts. He sees man's heart. Man won't be able to make an excuse before God. He won't be able to say, you know what, God? Hey, we didn't have the law like the Jews had. The Gentiles won't be able to plead their case. He says that it's that law was written in their heart and in their conscience. God says, you know what? I've given you enough and what I have revealed to you, you stand accountable to me for that. The Jew stands accountable with the law that I have given to them. They will be accountable at a different standard, at a different level, but they will be accountable with what I have given to them. Paul says, just because you don't have God's law, speaking to the Gentiles, it does not mean that you will escape the judgment of God. You see, every human being on this earth, every human being that has ever been birthed into this world will stand before a righteous judge who will judge them based upon what they did have, what they did know. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. 
they will stand accountable to God based upon what God has revealed to them. And God will judge them by that. Paul now goes from the general term of O man to the specific in verse 17. It says, indeed, you are called a Jew. And now Paul is going to take it away from the Gentile. He's going to take it away from the, the, the moralist or the self-righteous man. And he's now going to be specific with the Jew. He's going he's to point and bring about that judgment against the Jew. Paul himself, as I already said, was a Jew. He was what we might call in our day a religious man. He was, we could, I think, say that he was a self-righteous man before he came to know Christ. We might say that Paul was a moralist. That was his days before Christ. He gives his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. He says this, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, Paul says this, I the more so. If anyone could stand and boast about being a religious person, about doing, if anyone could stand before God in that way and boast in that way and have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, Paul says, I was blameless. If anyone could boast, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, I the more so. But what things were gained to me, I counted them lost for Christ, Paul said. Paul, on that road to Damascus, that day that he got saved, that day that, that God says, today's the day. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to reach down here and I'm going to knock the saw off of his horse, so to speak. And this man's going to be saved. And all of this, all of this life, all of his religious activity, all of his zeal against the, the church where he was going off and hauling men and women off, having them killed, all in the name of his religion, all in the name of God. He was zealous. He was a religious man. He says, I count all that but loss. I came to realize that my self-righteousness was not enough. Verse 17 the Jew stands guilty before God. Indeed, you are called a Jew. And you rest in the law as a Jew. And you make your boast in God. Paul was a Jew himself. He knew his testimony. He knew what he had come from. 
He's writing to his fellow Jews. And he says, I know what it is to rest in the law. Put confidence in the law. I I know what it is to have a a little bit of pride. Hey, I'm a Jew. I'm not one of these Gentile dogs. I'm not one of these, these Gentiles that worship all these pagan gods. We're Jews. I'm a Jew. And I, and I rest in the law and I, and, and I make my boast in God. Here he now is telling the Jews there in Rome. He says, verse 18, that, and you know his will. And you approve of the things that are excellent as a Jew, being instructed out of the law. Verse 19, and you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. And in verse 20, and you're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Now, who is a Jew? Well, a Jew in Scripture are those by origin that are descendants of Judah. We know that the Hebrew word for a Jew is Jehudim. And these were those who were dependents or that came down and came down through Abraham and then his son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob, and then out of Jacob came the twelve tribes of Israel. The Jew. The nation of Israel. The pride of Israel, and I've shared this in times past, the pride of Israel really consisted of three things. It was the law. They held that very high regards to the law. It was the law, it was the land that God had given to the nation of Israel, and it was their temple. It was the law, the land, and the temple that was the pride of Israel. They put a, they put a lot of stock in that. We're Jews. We're not Gentiles, we're Jews. In Deuteronomy 4.7 We read, for what great nation is there that has God so near it? Speaking about Israel. As the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon Him, and what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all of this law which I have set before you this day? They had God's written law. The other nations of the the land, they didn't have it. This was given to God's people. The law of God. In Genesis 15, 18, we read that on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. God says, I'm going to give you this land. 
as a nation. It's yours to possess. Go in and take it. I'll go before you. This land is given to you. And even to this very day, what is the nation of Israel doing? Defending their land. Defending their borders. Even though they don't have all of what God had originally given them to this day, they still know that God had given them this land. And they'll fight for it to their very death. In 2 Samuel 7.5, it says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? You see, in the Jews' mindset, that temple, that temple mount today, that place where God's temple stood, is sacred to the Jews. Jerusalem is sacred to the Jews. The law, the land, and the temple given to them by God. In verses 17 to 20, Paul lists all of these benefits we could say that God had given to the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, God has called Israel a holy people, a chosen people. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself. A special treasure. And then He says this, above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Wow. How does God look at the Jew? How does He look at the nation of Israel? He looks at them the same way today as He did then. He made promises and covenants with the nation of Israel that he can never renege on. These are the benefits that Paul is bringing out in this that you have as a Jew. You call yourself a Jew and you make your boast in God. That's what they were doing. Pride is an ugly thing. Would you all agree? Pride is ugly. Pride will keep a person out of heaven. Pride is is also deceptive to you and I. Our pride will deceive us. To the Jew, with all of these benefits and all of these things that had been given to them, were God's chosen people. They could allow their pride They could boast in their God. But they could get it all wrong. And they did. They missed Him as Messiah. They got it wrong. They stumbled over Him when He came. In their pride, that was really in their face, it kept them from seeing Jesus Christ as their Messiah. You see, pride says that I don't need God. Have you ever said that before you came to Christ? (laughs) Some do. I don't need God. I'm okay. I'm good. Pride says my self-righteousness is sufficient to God. The Jews, they were always trying to do that. Paul tried to do it. 
being a Pharisee, circumcised the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, my self-righteousness, my zeal, all of those things. It's sufficient. It's what God wants. It's what He's looking for. It's how people get deceived today by their religion. Pride also makes us judgmental towards others. Can you remember how many times Jesus had to rebuke the Pharisees? The religious leaders of the day. For their judgmental eye towards the sinners. Towards those who were not Jews. Pride tells us that we're better than others. And in the Jews' mind, for them to refer to you Gentiles as Gentile dogs, you're nothing better than a, than a dog. You, you worship pagan gods. And we're God's... That, that's pride. It's what they had to contend with. It's what they still contend with today. But remember that Paul in this letter, he's making a case. He's wanting to knock down all the pride of self-deception in the Jew. He's going to show them really that they're just acting as religious people. He wants to knock the crutches out. I've shared this before, you know, when I, when I go out witnessing to people. I, I see people quite often standing there and they, they look like they have a bunch of crutches hanging all over their body. Each one of those crutches that's hanging off of their body is an excuse. It, it's something that they, they just stand there and they, one excuse, one reasoning, one theological debate... One, this, and, and they just have all these crutches that are there. Paul, in a sense, is wanting to knock all of these crutches away from the Jew. He says it won't be sufficient. It won't be enough when you stand before God. Paul actually brings out ten things in these verses that the Jews could put, we'll call it a false confidence in. In verse 17, you were called a Jew. They put a lot of stock just in that. The sheer fact that they were God's chosen people. You rest in the law, Paul says. In other words, you have a, a blind trust in it. But the problem is you don't keep it. It's one thing to say you have the law of God. It's another thing to keep it. In verse 17, you make your boast in God. In other words, you profess that you know Him. You say that you do. We know that Titus 1.16 says that there are those who profess that they know God, but in their works they deny Him. They say they are, but their works don't line up with it. In verse 18, uh, you know His will. He's saying this to His fellow Jews. You know His will. In other words, you have God's direction for your life. You have His Word that gives you direction for life. 
You're His people that have been given His Word too. In verse 18, you approve the things that are excellent. Being instructed out of the law. In other words, you hear the reading of the law each week. Every time they went to temple. Every time they went to hear and went into the synagogue. To hear the word taught. To hear the word read. I think it was just, you know, hey, this is what we do as Jews. Week after week. It's kind of like us coming to church. Week after week. We come and we hear the Word of God taught. And I've heard it, and I've heard it, and I've heard it, but what are we doing with it? You see, that's what the Jews were putting a lot of stock in. In verse 19, you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind. They thought that they had all the the light. They thought that they had all the, the ways to direct those that were blind. Those Gentiles out there that are that don't even know the way. That you're a guide to the blind. In other words, those that don't have the law. We're God's people. We have His written law. We know it. We seek to practice it. And and, and, and in a sense, they saw themselves as being a guide to the blind. Those that didn't see it. Those that didn't have it. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 15, 14, that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, Jesus says of the Pharisees. They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. That's Jesus' rebuke of those that said that they even had the light. They had the way. They knew the way. But you're really, in a sense, blind leading the blind. Verse 19, you're a light to those who are in darkness. Again, those Gentiles. You are an instructor in verse 20. You're an instructor of the foolish or the immature. Or you're a corrector of the foolish. They saw themselves in that way. How many times did they call out the disciples and call out other people uh, there? They would call them out using their laws. You're an instructor to those that are immature. In the verse 20, you're a, you're a teacher of babes. You have in verse 20 the form of knowledge and truth in the law. But here's the problem they had the knowledge, but they didn't have any power, did they? And, and we can be that same way. We can have the knowledge, but where's the power in your life? Is it, is it just up here that we have it, or, or do we have it here? 
having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Just a form of it. Paul warned in 2 Timothy 3.5, he says, but know this, that in the last days that perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he says that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. What's that look like? What's that look like even within the church? To have a form of godliness, but denying the power. Paul tells Timothy, from such people turn away. We're living in those days. The Jews, they were living that way. Paul says, I'm not going to let you get out of this courtroom justifying yourself by all of these things, all these benefits that have been given to you. All of these privileges that were given to the nation of Israel became now their responsibility. What privilege has been given to you and I? What privileges have been given to us as New Testament Christians? We've been given the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. We have the ability to go out into this world and to tell somebody that good news. And with that, we have a responsibility to do it, don't we? It's not really an option, it's a command. To go out and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Jesus says, and I'm with you until the end of the age. That's for you and I. Not just the apostles. That's for the church. Again, he uses these rhetorical questions. Look at verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another. Do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal. Do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? They were given the privilege of being a Jew. They were given the privileges of all that God had promised them and given to them. But they had a responsibility to do something with it. In a sense, Paul is calling them out on the carpet. He's pointing to them. You have all these, but... Are you even living it? 
Are you even doing it? He wants them in a sense to derail them from their self-righteousness. He wants to bring them into the same camp that the Gentiles were in. In chapter 1, I'm lost apart from Jesus Christ. You see, the intent of the law was not just to govern the outward actions of man. That was never the Lord's ultimate intentions of the law. Just to govern what we would do so people would see. But, but the Jews, they, they were doing that. It was all exterior for many of them. But God who judges the heart was always and always is most concerned with the heart. You see, God knows that if He changes your heart, that your outside actions will follow that. That's what God knows. That's why He's always most concerned with your heart than He is with your outside actions. Because it'll just follow. He'll just do it. Because He's working on my heart right now. But it's real easy to hide behind the facade of religion and our outward duties and what we do as Christians even. And God says, but I see your heart. Your heart's far from me. I don't want all of your outward exercises. I want your heart. God doesn't want us to be religious people. I had a guy come to my house one day giving me a quote on a heat pump. And he asked what I did for a living. I told him I was a pastor. And the first thing that came out of his mouth is, I have a great-grandfather that was a preacher. I said, oh, wow. I mean, why, why does he want to just make that the first thing that he wants to tell me? I have a great-grandfather. What about a, a great-great? I mean, if some of you, they'll go back... How many generations? I have a great, great, great grandfather as a preacher. As if that's going to secure him or do anything for him at all. But isn't that the nature of man's flesh? Oh, I got a great grandfather who was a preacher. Wow. <laughs> Mark seven twenty one for. From within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a man. The result of this mindset verse 24, the result of this wrong or this distorted thinking, we could say, of the Jew. For the name of God is what? Blasphemed. Among the Gentiles because of you Jews. God never lets us get away with these things. 
He won't let his own people, his chosen people, get away with it. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written. And here he's really quoting from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 5. Paul quotes from Isaiah to tell them that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Isaiah 52.5 says, Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. God loves his people Israel. God loves the nation of Israel. But even to this very day, in the rejection of him, in the way that they, that they they're like, God says that, that you blaspheme my name. God help us. That we would really be true to who we say we are. It wasn't just these, all these religious Jews. What about us? Are we really true to who we say we are? Or in a sense, are we blaspheming the name of God by, oh, I'm a Christian, but I go out and I live like anybody else. I mean, you wouldn't even know. I mean, the worst thing that anybody could ever say to you and I is that you've worked at a company for five or ten years and then they go, I didn't know you were a Christian. Something gets brought up one day, I didn't know. I didn't know. You mean there's nothing? You didn't see anything? Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. Verse 25 for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. He's still putting this and pointing this right at his fellow Jew. For circumcision, something else of the law that they held very close to them, is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. How do you think that sounds in the ear of a religious Jew that has sought to live his whole life? It's the way it would have sounded in the Apostle Paul's ears as he was a religious man thinking that he was living up as a Pharisee and a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's the way he would have handled himself. The Jews were trusting in that ritual of circumcision. Even telling those that Gentiles that even came to a saving knowledge. These are the, even the, the uh, Jews that got saved and realized Jesus was their Messiah. They also were still falling trapped to this issue of circumcision. Telling them that you need to be circumcised because they couldn't get it out of them. It was ingrained within them from eight years old, from their whole life growing up that every good Jew was circumcised on the eighth day. 
It was part of their law. It was their obedience to the law of God. And they were even telling people, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. Paul had to address that. Circumcision is something that God has instructed His people to do. It was part of the law. It was right and it was good that they did it. But what they were turning it into is a ritual, a religious act. You see, God wants the circumcision not to be of the flesh, but it to be of the heart. That's ultimately what we have received when we become born again, the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision is a picture of the cutting away of sin. He says, I want to circumcise your heart, not your outward exterior. They were consumed with the outward. God says, I'm concerned with the circumcision of your heart. Verse 26, therefore, or the reasonable and the logical conclusion we could say, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his circumcision be counted as circumcision? He's asking the question. Paul is telling the Jew, don't put your confidence in circumcision or in the fact that you are a descendant of Abraham. Don't do it. Don't put your confidence in that. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? They had all the written code. They, had, they, they were holding on to circumcision as being one of those things that was that ritual between them and God that they were obedient to. For he is not a Jew who is one inwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, talking about the letter of the law, whose praise is not from men, and this is what's important. It's praise from God. I want God to be the righteous judge. I want to do it His way. I want to stand before God someday just completely at peace inside knowing that, you know what? There's nothing that I did to get myself to this place to stand before Him in his righteousness. He did it all for me. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.